So we're going to start low. We're going to grow. Forte. Having the God's Word. Appreciate them so much getting us ready. And uh, if you have a Bible, wanna, we're going to be in two places today. This is a little unusual. I know I'm going to make you work. But um, if you have a Bible, you can use a ribbon. Usually there is a ribbon in your Bible. And actually, we're going to go to Matthew 28 first. And then you can put your bulletin or your thumb in Matthew 5. And uh, we're going to go to Matthew 28 first, though. If uh, you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Pew Bible in front of you. I'd love for you to see God's Word there and have it. If you've got a mobile device, I don't know how to bookmark something or put a ribbon. Uh, you can figure that out. Uh, but in the Pew Bibles, that'll be page 835 first, and then you can stick a bulletin in page 812 as we begin to read God's Word. And uh, before we read Matthew 28, a little bit of context as Jesus has been crucified um, and then risen again. He has shown himself to many uh, witnesses all throughout the region and, uh, and has spoken to the disciples, showed the disciples the the, the marks in his hands and his feet and his side, and he's um, demonstrated himself in his risen and glorified body. And then at the close of the Gospel of Matthew, he gives this sort of closing command. That's the passage we like to read frequently around here, Matthew 28, and we'll begin reading in verse 18. Um, and uh, if we'll get that ready on the screen there, we might have to, I might have put it out of order, but I wanted to read Matthew 28 first. You guys got that back there? Look at that. They're good. They are good. Matthew 28, 18, it says this. And Jesus came and said to them, to the them, that's the disciples, which you can see in verse 16. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? That's the authority that Jesus Christ has being the Messiah, being fully God, fully man. He's got all authority in heaven and on earth. Every knee will bow to Jesus. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He has all the authority in the world, in the universe even. There is no authority greater than his. Now we get the command, verse 19. Go, therefore, and anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, you should ask, what's it there for, right? What's it there for? Why is it there for? Go, therefore. What's the therefore connected to the sentence? previous, which was all the authority uh, that Jesus has, he's now given it to us. And he says, go therefore in his authority and make disciples. Make what? Disciples of all nations, not just one nation, of all nations, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am what? I am with you. How often? Always to the end of the age. Great job. Now you get to flip back um, a few pages or pull out your ribbon or your bulletin or scroll on your mobile device and find Matthew 5. Matthew 5 and verse 13 through 16. We're going to read that. Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16 says this. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. That would be weird, wouldn't it? But they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do me a favor. Go ahead and Corona shake your neighbor with your elbow. Corona shake and tell them, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Y'all know that song? All right. Good, good. Well, as we have read God's word, would you uh, join with me for a word of prayer? Just a prayer of blessing over our time together. Father, we come to you. I ask for help that you'd help me, a sinner like me, communicate your truth. But God, I'm, I'm so thankful that, that I'm not even necessary. God, but your word is sufficient in and of itself, and your spirit in and of itself is, is all that's needed to speak to us. But yet, Lord, you choose people to communicate your message. So often I feel like, who am I, Lord, to communicate your message? I'm nobody. But yet you've chosen me. You've called me. You've commanded me to do this. And Lord, you've chosen every believer in this room. You've called every believer in this room. And you've commanded every believer in this room to do their part in communicating your message, the Great Commission, the gospel, the beauty of Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that you'd help us to that endeavor. God, you'd help us to make much of you, Jesus, because you're worth it all. I just want to encourage you to have a little conversation with God wherever you are in your spiritual journey. And would you just say something like this in the quietness of your heart as you sit there? Just have a little prayer and say, Lord, speak to me today. Lord, speak to me today. And then you may want to say something like this, for I intend to obey. For I intend to obey. Father, we're here for you. Be glorified in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Well, we finished 2 Thessalonians as a church. And now we are in this series, a new series called The Invite. The Invite or The Invitation as we are preparing for, uh, we're about a month away from Easter. It's a good reminder to give an invite to a friend, a neighbor, an invite to help them know Christ, an invite to come to church with you, to sit next to you, uh, The Invite. How many of you, though, like invitations? You guys like invitations, right? Raise your hand. It's okay. Thank you. I appreciate the kids that are ready and listening. Some of the adults are still snoozing. And um, we all like invitations, right? I don't think I've ever really gotten an invitation I didn't like. I may not have gone to every event, but it's always like, oh, look at it. It looks pretty. And, you know, and, then, and then why do we like invitations? Because somebody thought of us, right? Somebody thought we were worthy enough to come to their graduation. Somebody thought we were worthy enough to come to their wedding. Somebody thought we were worthy enough to come to their birthday party. At Chuck E. Cheese. I mean, right? You got to be on a pretty high list to get invited to go to Chuck E. Cheese. 
That might be the only invitation some adults are like, no, that one goes in the trash. I'm just playing, right? You get an invite to a baby shower. You get an invite out to a special dinner. You are chosen. You have been selected. You have been called and invited. You've been invited in. You feel a part of it. Boy, and what happens when somebody doesn't get an invitation, right? Right? Man, we do get salty. You see the pictures later on Facebook of all the fun somebody else had. They went out and you weren't invited, right? This creates some animosity, the invitation. And so, man, when we come to sharing the gospel, we are giving folks an invite. We are giving folks an invite to know Jesus Christ first. We're giving them an invitation to be a part of the greatest wedding celebration that that has ever been and there ever will be. In the book of Revelation, it talks about the coming of the end of time, and it says it will be a wedding banquet, a wedding feast. And I believe Jesus gives us that beautiful imagery there. In fact, he calls the church his bride, and he is the husband or the bridegroom. And there's an invitation given to people. And then we are simply ambassadors of that invitation, letting every person know, boys, girls, men, women of every generation, of every background, of every color, of every creed, of every gender, you are invited. God is inviting you into his family, into his banquet table. You have an invite. I bet none of you have like prepared invitations for a birthday party and be like, ah, do I want to send this to them? What if they're offended that I invite them? Right? That's never happened. You've had the other thing like, do we really want to invite them? Right? That's, that's where we struggle with. That's where we struggle. We don't, we don't struggle with, man, will they be offended if I invite them to the birthday party, to my wedding? You never think about that. But somehow when it comes to this topic of what we call evangelism, and, and sort of the subtitle for today is the what of evangelism. And evangelism comes from the word, uh, from the Greek word really for the gospel, euangelion, which means good news. Good news. It's a proclamation of good news that Christ has come to pay the price for sinners so that we could be restored back to a right relationship with Christ. Even though we had sinned against him, even though we have violated God's commands and we had no right to stand in his presence. Every one of us have told a lie. Every one of us has thought thoughts that are ungodly and wicked. And we don't deserve to get an invitation, but because of Christ, he paid for our invitation. And so we need to get our minds around what this invite means. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Let me give you a definition uh, of evangelism. This is probably just perhaps one definition. There, there could be many others, but I like to say it this way. Evangelism is joining a conversation God is already having where I show and tell the gospel. Evangelism is joining a conversation that God is already having where I show and tell the gospel. You may want to write that down. I'm not saying that, you know, if you don't take notes, it might risk your eternity of getting into heaven. I'm just saying, why take the chance? I'm just kidding. But this is an important reminder that evangelism is this conversation that I'm joining that God is already having. See, because when we think about evangelism, we have all these ideas, right? We think of a street preacher, like holding up signs, you know, somewhere out there. Uh, we, we think of a guy on TV, some TV evangelist, right? 
and, and some kind of fancy suit and, uh, and people with blue hair who sit up on the stage and high back chairs or something like that. You know, we, we tend to think of all these things when we think of the word evangelism or we think of um, uh, uh, some, some, some Christian, some person coming up to you at your place of work or while you're working out and, and they've got a canned memorized spiel that they're just waiting to pounce upon some unsuspecting person. They're going to give them a spiel. And uh, we tend to have all these ideas uh, of what evangelism is instead of the truth about how Jesus did it, how it's portrayed in the Bible, and, and what does it mean to have a conversation with somebody. You see, because God is already calling his people. The Bible makes that very clear, that, that people are without excuse. God has revealed himself, according to Romans uh, 1, to all people and displayed his glory. And so he's having a conversation with people. The question always is whether or not they are listening, but he's already started a conversation. But see, we tend to assume something, right? We assume, look at our culture, Pastor. Look at all these people that don't believe and all this stuff. And we assume God is not working and God is not speaking. But how do we know the Bible says that the harvest is plentiful? The harvest is plentiful. So the problem is not with the harvest. In fact, the rest of that verse, Jesus says, but the workers are few. So the problem is not with the harvest. The harvest is ready for Christian workers. The problem is with the, the Christian workers. The workers are few. There are, are, are people that are not out in the harvest reaping the harvest. And Jesus gives us that metaphor of a harvest of people, of souls, of precious lives that he loves he says that are ready to come into the kingdom, to come into my storehouse. And yet the problem is that the workers are sitting on their hands, are sitting in the pews, are singing lovely songs, are attending lovely meetings, but are not in the harvest. And so we assume that God is not working. We assume God is not talking, but just let's assume differently. Every person you meet, assume God is already talking to them because that's true according to the Bible. God has already spoken to people. So instead of assuming this person doesn't know anything about God, just assume they went to church when they were little. Assume maybe they didn't go to church, but they had a grandma who loved them. They had a grandma who loved Jesus, and she had a Bible verse above her toilet. And every time they went to the bathroom, they read the Bible verse at grandma's house. It was crocheted up there. Assume God is working. There's a beautiful book um, called Out of the Salt Shaker. And as we're going to read, uh, we're going to spend the rest of our time really in Matthew 5. And that's why I had to read that second. So we're going to get to that in a second. But it's written by a lady named Rebecca Pippert. And uh, she talks about how Christians need to get out of the salt shaker. We are, we are salt, but we're too busy in the shaker just sitting up in the cabinet looking good as Christians. Looking great in church, but we got to get out of the salt shaker. And she begins to tell story after story of how she was afraid uh, to share her faith. She was actually in Spain living uh, overseas, uh, working with InterVarsity Ministries. And she begins to say how she was trying to share the gospel there. That was part of what she was called to do, but she was nervous. So then one of her superiors said, how about you invite people to a Bible study in your apartment and just do life with people and invite them to study about Jesus, invite them to, to read the Bible. She's like, yeah, I'll do that. So she puts out this invitation and, um, and, and she's ready for people to come. And then she's having lunch with one of her friends uh, that she's met in that area. And this lady is, 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 in her mind, completely antagonistic about Christ. She frequently talks about how she believes and uh, in, in, uh, doesn't believe in God. And she believes this. And she's frequently kind of making rude remarks. And this 
girl, Rebecca, is like, oh, man, this girl, you know, is always, man, like attacking Christianity and all this sort of stuff. And so they're having lunch together. And so this lady is making some statements about how she doesn't believe X and Y and how God is this and that. And then she says, but I heard you're having a study at your house on Wednesday nights. And this girl, Rebecca, had never invited her. And she was like, oh, man, how did you hear about that? Because she was thinking she wants people to come who are receptive to the message. She, she's thinking, I don't want Mary to come. She's antagonistic. And she was like, who told her? Who told her? And she's like, she's confessing how wrong this is. She's just saying, this is my heart. She's like, I don't want this lady to come. She's going to ask me all these questions. I don't know how to answer them. She's already antagonistic when we're at lunch. Lord, have mercy. If I get her in my home, in my apartment, and we open up the Bible, oh my gosh, she's going to probably fight me. And she said, so I heard you're having this thing. I want to come to it. And Rebecca's like, oh, Lord, please don't let her come. So she goes to her uh, supervisor and she says, which one of you told Mary that I was having the Bible study? Because I didn't give her an invite. I invited the other girls that were in our class, but I didn't invite her. And, um, and, and, and they just laughed and chuckled. They said, God is doing something. And so Wednesday night comes around. Seven o'clock is when she's going to start. She's getting nervous. Her palms are sweaty. She's, you know, freaking out. 6.55, 6.57, 6.57 Nobody shows up. She's relieved a little bit and disappointed because she thought the other girls were going to come. 7.05 rolls around. 7.07. A knock at the door. She opens. It's Mary. The lady she didn't want to come. So now she's extra nervous. She's fidgeting around the house. She's nervous about this sort of stuff. And she's, she's just praying, Lord, let somebody else come who is interested. Let somebody else who's receptive come, please, Lord. And um, 7.15, 7.20, she's like, I guess I got to get started. Nobody else is going to come. It's just me and Mary. The antagonist. So they start reading the passage of John. She starts asking questions, but then they talk. Okay, Lord, I'll 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 answer. Um, and uh, that was just, uh, we just got an email. That's all. That's what it was. And uh, so back to the story. So they begin talking. They go through the verses. They go through this sort of stuff. And the lady was interested, but she asked a lot of questions. She began to to, to ask, say this and that. And and it was somewhat of a pleasant experience, although the lady was very honest about stuff. And then she gets to the night. She's like, whoo. So the next week comes around. And she's like, Lord, please let somebody else come. A knock comes at the door. Just Mary. Just Mary and her again. And so she begins. And she's like, I kind of prepared the same lesson, hoping some other people would come because I didn't think she really was into it. And so she's like, I don't know what to talk about. So we start reading some more in, in the book of John. And we start going through this sort of stuff. And this lady's asking questions and going through this. And what about this? And what about that? And this. And they just have this dialogue. And then, uh, you know, they they continue to, 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 to meet. And then when she prays, you know, she just prays for Mary and, and, uh, and all this sort of stuff. And, and long story short, Mary comes to faith in Christ through these interactions. But it was Rebecca who was actually afraid to ask her to come to Christ because she didn't think that the harvest was plentiful. She was actually more nervous about her antagonism. And what her friend Mary later said, is she said, you know, I, I would hear the Bible studies, but what impressed me most was that you weren't perfect. See, so many Christians I met in my life, they, they acted like they were better than me and, and they acted like they had no problems. But I got to see you, you, you had some problems, but you talked about them openly and you, you admitted you needed God's help. And that showed me that 
man, God could help me. And she said, and when you took time to pray for me, you didn't think about this, but we were at the coffee shop the week before the first Bible study. You prayed for me and you prayed for the food. And I thought, oh, that's quite that you prayed for the food. But then when you prayed for me and you said, thank you for my friend Mary, I never had anybody pray for me before. And that you considered me a friend. And she began to explore this. And, and it was just an amazing reminder that God is already working. We tend to assume he is not. And so let's flip the assumption. Amen. Assume God is working. Also remember that it's a conversation and a conversation is always two sided. Right. It's not a monologue where you're just spitting out facts about Jesus. It's a conversation. But then it's also where we demonstrate we show the gospel in our actions and we tell the gospel. Some people say, Pastor, I just want to be kind to people. That's my witness work. I'm just kind to people. I don't need to open my mouth. And, um, well, you're missing part of the gospel because the, the gospel is a proclamation. It's good news. And so there has to be a both showing and telling. And so let's, let's look at the text here, and I'll give you a couple points to write down. The what of evangelism. Number one, my evangelism should create an appetite for more of Jesus. My evangelism, my sharing, my gospel conversations, showing and telling should create an appetite for more of Jesus. It should create an appetite. It should create hunger or thirst for more of Jesus. How many know that that the way your words are spoken are sometimes even more important than what you say? See, sometimes it's, it's not what we say, but it's how we say it. How are our words? Are they creating a thirst and an appetite? See, some of us think about evangelism, and, and we all have somebody we know. We have an experience, right? A guy at a job, a lady you know, and we're saying, Pastor, I don't want to be like that guy. I don't want to be like that lady. They're a little bit, eh. we all We all have examples of how not to do evangelism, right? They're a little too abrasive. They come and they just snap on somebody and and they they come with some big guilt trip walking around the office talking about how much better they are, how much more godlier they are than everybody else and and how all the other wicked sinners should straighten their lives up or become some political debate that people get into. And they're debating one side and other. And how many know that no one got debated into the kingdom of God? People come into the kingdom of God. Because the Holy Spirit draws them and the word of God speaks to them. and The Holy Spirit convicts them and God brings salvation to them. But he uses our proclamation of the gospel, not of a political debate. We say this guy comes in and his whole thing is about how he is right and you are wrong. And everything should be done his way. We all know somebody like that. Instead, we should be wetting their appetite for more of Jesus. Look at verse 13 in Matthew 5, right? Verse 13 says this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Salt is a very valuable thing, especially in the first century. People were actually paid in salt. That's where that phrase comes from. You ever heard that phrase? He's not worth his salt. Meaning he's not worth his wages. See, soldiers back in the Roman Empire were paid sometimes. And salt is a very valuable thing. And so salt, as you know, though, is a flavor additive. It makes things flavorful. It also makes people more hungry or thirsty. It makes them want more, right? You remember the old Lay's potato chip commercial? Y'all remember those, right? You can't eat just one. 
How could they say that? How could that be true? Because they salted the daylights out of those things. Right? And it created in you an appetite for more. You're like, man, they're right. I really can't just eat one. Some of you lost money on those kind of bets back when those commercials came out, right? We need to be like a Lay's potato chip. Man, I just can't meet just one Christian. I want to know more about Jesus because, not because they're salty as we say today, meaning unkind or rude, guilt-tripping people, but it's wetting people's appetites, right? I heard the story about a, a salesman who had lost a sale, and he was talking to his supervisor, and he said, well, I almost had him. Uh, it was close, but you know, uh, boss, you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And the wise old salesman says, listen, your job is not to make him drink. Your job is to make him thirsty. Now, listen, if the world and salespeople know that, how do we not know that as believers? Because the world has all kinds of ways of showing us stuff that we we didn't know we needed. And all of a sudden we think we need it now. Right. And, uh, and what they're trying to do is create a thirst in us. And, and we should be creating a thirst and a hunger for more of Jesus. The fruit of the spirit is really attractive to people. I heard a quote this week that said this. You can be theologically correct and, un, and an unloving person. You can be theologically correct and an unloving person, which means ultimately you are wrong because the Bible says whatever not is done of, of love were just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbals. He said some people mark their Bibles, but their Bibles never mark them. Some people go through the word of God, but the word of God never seems to go through them. Oh, may that not be true of us. Let's be a loving person today. I love what the Apostle Paul said over elsewhere in the scripture in the book of Colossians chapter four, verse six. In, in Colossians four, verse six, it says, let your speech, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with what? Salt, seasoned with salt. And what kind of speech is it? Gracious speech that is that is creating an appetite for people to know more about Jesus. And then he says, so that you may know how you ought to answer what each person. Man, what a beautiful reminder. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let your speech, Christian at work, let your speech about Jesus be gracious, gracious speech, seasoned with salt, wetting an appetite for others. One of the first verses I memorized when I was a new Christian was 1 Peter 3.15. It says this. There's so much in this verse. You can preach an entire series probably out of this one verse. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. Honor Christ as Lord as holy. Always being prepared. Always being prepared to make a defense or give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, respecting others, gently speaking the gospel to them. But notice they are asking you, it says, be ready to give a defense or an answer to anyone who asks you. Why would someone ask you about the hope that's in you? Because you've been the right kind of salty, not the wrong kind of salty. You've been creating an appetite. And they're like something about you at work. What is it about you? Why are you like that? And you get to say, oh, it's because I go to church. It's because I'm so good. Now, your story just gets to be this. Hey, look, man, 
I'm a human and I'm a mess. And, and all I know is this. I don't understand everything. All I know is that God loved me right where I was and I gave my life to him and Jesus has changed me. I once was a sinner. I used listen to me. You think I'm nice now. You should have seen me a year ago. And if they worked with you a year ago, they might be able to say, oh, yeah, no, I remember. I remember that. Yeah, you are different. But they, they would they would say, wow. And you get to say, listen, there is no glory to me. God has just changed me. If you want to know more about it, I can tell you more about him. I can tell you about Jesus. I don't know the whole Bible. I don't have the answer to every question, but I love to, to talk with you after work because, uh, you know, I love to, to meet with you. We could read the Bible together. I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. I'm trying to grow. Let's grow together. I'd love to share that with you. Right. And so. Let's remember that number one is that, is that man, our evangelism, my evangelism needs to be creating an appetite for more of Jesus. Number two, my evangelism should preserve the truth. My evangelism should preserve the truth. The second thing about salt, right, is salt was not only a flavor enhancer or an appetite inducer, but salt was a preservative, right? How many of you have a refrigerator? Everybody have a refrigerator? Good? Okay. All right. All of us have one. Just three people wanted to raise their hands. I might get the coronavirus, Pastor, if I raise my hands. Keep it tucked in. It's okay to raise your hand in church. But but salt is a preservative. It, it, it keeps things alive. It keeps things fresh. It's a preserving agent. And so we should be, as Christians, preserving the truth of God. We don't, we don't have to back down on the truth. Just because we're being gentle and creating appetite doesn't mean we have to shy away from the truth. Amen? Jesus said, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. The truth will sometimes offend people. The gospel is offensive to people because it reminds us that we are not on the throne and Christ must be on the throne. It does call people everywhere to repent from their sins. And so, yeah, that part is offensive. We don't have to shy away from that. Our job is simply to preserve that. We do it in love, though. But what is, look at verse 13 with me, back at verse 13. It says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underneath people's feet. How can salt lose its taste? You, you may wonder. Well, salt actually, sodium chloride, is a very stable compound. And they probably use a little different uh, type of salt in the first century anyways. Um, but salt is, is, is rather stable. But, but how salt loses its saltiness or its taste is this. Is it becomes diluted with other substances or it becomes contaminated with other substances and so sometimes you know how just in today's society people do it too um i mean i don't expect that all of y'all would know about this so y'all might know about white stuff in a bag um and uh that is is diluted and so when they would sell salt sometimes they would add some other white substance to it and people wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It was mixed with another white rock or another white grain of something. And so they would mix it. They would dilute or contaminate the salt. And so you thought you were buying five pounds of salt, but you're only really getting about three and a half pounds. The, the rest of it was contaminated. It was mixed with something else. Oh, how believers are not to be contaminated with the world. Amen. How we're not to dilute our purity and our holiness and our righteousness. And sometimes this is where we start to to, to decompose because we're hanging out and we're still doing worldly 
things and our righteousness and holiness. Now listen, I'm not saying we need to be perfect, but we are to be striving and moving forward in our holiness. And when we don't, that begins to affect our witness. Many people say it's a cold world today. It's, it's too hard to witness in today's society. Pastor, I'm trying to be a preserving agent in my society. I'm trying to be a preserving agent in my neighborhood and in my job place. But have you heard the way people talk, Pastor? It's, it's hard. Have, there's a coldness to the gospel. And you know what? That's true. I'm not going to deny that. In today's culture, it's not just indifference to the gospel and to Jesus. There is almost outright open hostility to Jesus. A generation ago, when some of us grew up, there was social pressure to be a Christian. It was kind of like, man, everybody around me is a Christian. I'm not. There was social pressure to be a Christian. It was like, wait, you don't go to church? Oh, no, no, no. I, 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 yeah, I, 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 go, I, I go to church. What church you go to? You know, the, the one around the first, second. <laughs> Baptist. Presbyterian. It's the, the pastor, past, you know, you know the pastor. <laughs> and uh, but now, listen, the opposite. And that was just a generation ago. Now there is social pressure to not be a Christian. Many Christians feel that their jobs, many Christians feel that their schools like, man, I can't say anything about Jesus because, man, they're, they're going to be trying to, to twist me up. They're going to be trying to get me on one side or another. And there, there is social pressure. Oh, you're one of those. You're, oh, you must be like, oh, you must be like, oh, OK. You know, and it happens to me. It happened to me just the other week, right? Oh, you're the pastor? Oh, man, dude started just railing into me. My wife was like, oh, my Lord, here we go. And um, and he was just trying to hit me with all kinds of stuff. And, uh, man, I just didn't let it get to me. And um, But we feel that it's too hard to witness, you know, because it's so cold out. But can I remind you? And and so what we do is we, we, we use that as an insurmountable obstacle. Like, I can't share because it's so hard. It's so cold. The ground is so cold, Pastor. No, the Bible still says the harvest is plentiful. So don't be deceived. Can I remind you that when Christianity first started in the first century, the culture wasn't exactly embracing Christians. In fact, they did the opposite to Christians. They burned them at the stake. They threw them in the gladiator arenas to be devoured by lions and bears. Regularly, they were kicked out of their homes and kicked out of their cities it was kind of an interesting time to be a Christian in the Roman Empire at that time because Rome uh, accepted a pantheon of gods. It was okay to believe in whatever God you wanted to, it, unless you said there's only one God and unless you were unwilling to say the emperor is God. And there were these two groups in the Roman Empire, the Jews and this new group, this, these Christians. They were called followers of the way. And man, the Romans couldn't stand that. Now, the Jews, they kind of got used to because they were around for a while and they were like, oh, they're all of the same ethnicity. They're kind of just like that. We just put them over there in the corner and, and, and if they get too much out of line, we'll, we'll fix them. But they couldn't figure out the Christians because the Christians were saying, listen, there is only one God and it's not the emperor. We'll respect the emperor. We'll honor the emperor, but we won't worship the emperor. But the Christians were from all different ethnicities. They were from all different countries and it was just continuing to spread faster than the coronavirus, and, and it was spreading, and they couldn't figure out why it was spreading. Books have been written about why did Christianity spread so fast. Listen, there, there were no newspapers. There were no um, big churches like this. There were no uh, TV ads or billboards for Jesus. 
You know how Christianity spread back in the first century despite all the persecution? It spread because of personal conversations that the believers had. See, there was no, hey, come to my church, we got an egg hunt going on. There was no, come to my church, we got a trunk and tree. There, there was no, come to my big church and, and, and listen to the preacher. There, there was no big gathering like that in the first century. They met in homes and, and they just say, hey, come to my home and, and let me share with you. And, and they were working side by side. It, it spread by personal conversations that people had. It, it spread by the love that others had. And it's interesting, these personal conversations came at a great personal cost. Because in the first century, to speak up about Jesus at your workplace for sure meant you could be fired or imprisoned. For sure meant your business, if you're a business owner, it could mean your business would be shut down by the Roman government or, or would be blacklisted and others would not go there. And so for, for these believers to speak up and have personal conversations, not just point people to like a website or just give them a book, man, they had to have boldness. And so the question happens, right? Why were, 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 were they so willing to die what we are so unwilling to live for? And listen, I know, I know there's a cost to our sharing, right? But let's weigh the cost. It's, it's social ostracism, right? It's, it's, it's my social life might get hurt a little bit. Your livelihood has not been affected, I'm guessing, for most of us by our display of the gospel. And so we, we are to be preserving the truth. Scott Sauls, pastor and writer, says this, in contrast to the early Christians in the first century, we today are often contaminated salt mixed in with the world. In the eyes of the watching world, our lives are often more lackluster than compelling. Our lives are more contentious than kind. Our lives are more selfish than servant-like. Our lives are more fickle than faithful. Our lives are often more materialistic than generous. And our lives are more proud than humble. That is a contaminated life. That is salt that has lost its taste. It has been quoted that Gandhi, as he heard the gospel and read the New Testament, said, I like your Christ, but it's your Christians I don't like. They are so unlike your Christ. Oh, may that never be true of us, Plaza. And listen, we are all human and we will all blow it. And what the difference is, like that story I told you about the lady at the beginning, Rebecca Pipper, is that when we blow it, we get that opportunity to say, hey, you know what, man, I was rude the other day. Would you forgive me? I shouldn't have said that at work. I, I'm a Christian and man, that kind of language just really dishonors me and dishonors my Lord. I just want to let you know, I, I apologize for using that. They'd be like, whatever, man, I don't care. I said that a hundred times a day. But listen, when you have that kind of integrity, people aren't looking for perfection. They're looking for someone who, who has really experienced forgiveness. And so let's continue to be people. And, um, and, and listen, even as we think about, man, uh, Christians throughout the centuries and throughout history, and we think about the coronavirus spreading, man, this is, this is a time for Christians to be encouraged and bold and not frightened. We, there have been plagues happening all throughout the, 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 the centuries. There's nothing new about diseases. But it's been Christians who, in fact, were, were shining like stars, were being salt and light during these times. In the third century, one of the most devastating plagues to hit the Roman world happened. It's called the, the, the Cyprian Plague. At its height, it is believed to have killed 5,000 people a day. 5,000 people a day. 
There was another plague, the Antonine Plague in the second century. It is said to have been equally devastating. It would impact nearly every corner of the Roman Empire. But what was often noted in these plagues was the response of this fairly new religious group, these followers of the way or Christians. While many Roman citizens were deserting the sick and fleeing the towns, the Christians were tending to them, even helping with their burial. The pagan emperor Julian of the Roman Empire was recorded as saying, they support not only their people and their poor, but they support ours as well. And all men see that our people lack aid from us. The Christians were rising up, unafraid to share the gospel, unafraid of of the virus and the sickness and the plagues. Their faith was causing them to act different, to be salt and light. I believe we have a picture because even in uh, China, um, this yellow jacket has become a beautiful sign. In China, it is often illegal to preach the gospel. But now everybody's wearing face masks. <laughs> and so these Christians have been emboldened to preach the gospel. And what they did is, is they began to hand out protective masks in China. This was uh, last month. It was on uh, CBN, if you guys watched that. And they had uh, some news uh, coverage about that. But in Wuhan, where a lot of this outbreak started, money was useless. Why? Because you can't find a store that sells masks. You can't find anything open. And, uh, and, and I mean, it was just a, a desperate situation. But in response, the brothers and sisters began to preach the gospel, to give out gospel tracts and free masks. They are sharing the word of hope. This comes from a pastor in that area. They are sharing the word and the hope and the comfort of God. They have become more and more favored in the city, even in the eyes of the authorities who once would arrest them for doing the very same thing. Why? Because they are being salt and light. These churches in Wuhan, keep themselves away from rumors, keep themselves away from political issues, and they just do what the true Christian should do in this situation. Preach the gospel and be a witness of the true hope that comes from Jesus in front of non-believers who are panicked and hopeless. So a police officer came up to approach one of these yellow-jacketed believers. He was a little nervous, but he listened to the gospel and left with a track and a mask happily. After that, another police officer arrived and heard and left with a track and a mask. Shortly after that, another one came, another officer. More and more officers come. By the time it was all said and done, they said, these are the ones that used to be concerned about the message of Christianity. Now they are happy we are preaching it. And so these yellow suits have become the most beautiful color in the city of Wuhan. Christians have gained the respect that they never had before because they're, watch this, their willingness to risk their lives for the sake of the gospel and serve others. Oh, how may we be people like that who are unashamed of the gospel. We're being salt and light. But see, again, we often have a problem, a God problem. In fact, that same lady, Rebecca Pippert, in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, said, we are often afraid to share the gospel because our confidence is in the wrong place. Can I say that again? Our confidence is in the wrong place. We actually have a God problem. We actually don't believe what Jesus said in Matthew 28, that he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. We think that if we share the gospel and risk our lives and have a conversation with somebody, we will be hung out to dry by ourselves. And we forget the promises of Scripture. And so my evangelism should be preserving the truth. Thirdly, and finally is this, my evangelism is not about me. So help your neighbor, do the corona elbow shake and tell them it's not about you. 
It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. My evangelism is not about me. Look at verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. We we should be a flashlight. We should be a light pointing. Just go ahead and back. We'll stay on verse 14 there. I want to just hang out on verse 14. It's a dark world out there, right? And we're often wondering, what is the solution? Jesus had a solution. You know what a solution is? Us. We are the light of the world. We should be pointing the way with our flashlights, pointing the way to Christ, pointing the way to hope. As we often say around here, we we are just simply beggars who found where the bread line is. We're simply telling other people where the bread is, the bread of life, but set on a hill. Set on a hill. Look at that word there, set on a hill. A city is set on a hill. Back when they would build cities, they would strategically put them, right, in a particular place. Often for defensive reasons, they would put them on a hill, right? Why? Right? Harder to attack a city that's higher up, right? The the mountains build some natural barriers, so they would find the highest place in that region. They would start to build a city there. A city is strategically placed in that location. They were often made of limestone or different rock that was often white and it would reflect the sunlight during the day. It would be like this bright beacon or at night it would reflect the moonlight. Oh, how we are to be believers who are reflecting the light of the glory of Christ. Amen. We are set upon a hill. When you saw that city and the moonlight was shining or the sunlight was shining, it was bright. It was this beacon. It was reflecting a greater light. And that's what we are to be doing. We are to be reflecting the greater light. But notice that they're set. Again, that word, they're set strategically. Can you just be reminded that God has set you strategically where he wants you? You're set in the family that you're in. Set there strategically. You're set in the job that you're in. You're set in the city you're in. Some of you are saying, Pastor, no, no, thank you. I got to this God-forsaken place only because I got orders here. And I can't wait till I get orders someplace else. Right? No. You have been strategically set here by God and his sovereign plan. You've been set in the neighborhood. You thought you picked out that house? You thought you picked out that apartment? No. God set you there. And he set you there for a reason. Students, sometimes, and listen, this goes for coworkers too, right? Sometimes you feel like you're the only Christian in the building. You feel like you're the only Christian in your school. And you're like, I am not set there, Pastor. Trust me, I'm trying to get out of there as fast as I can. No, God put you there as a light because he knew that there needed to be a light in that city, in that house, on that street, in that classroom, by that locker. Because there are some people only you can reach. There are some people only you can speak to. God has put you there in your neighborhood, at the gym, at your grocery store. God has put you there. And even this, you have been set according even to your past struggles. Sometimes we're wondering, God, why did you allow me to go through that, your pain? Look, there are only bedsides that you could sit next to because of the pain you have walked through. And God will use what you have went through to be a blessing to others. There, there has been struggle and temptation in your life. Stay with me now. That only you have gone through that you could be a blessing to others and say, look, I went through that temptation too. Let me tell you how God delivered me from my addictions. And God has put you and set you strategically as a light. And again, you don't say, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and my addictions. You get to say, man, Christ helped me. Let me tell you how he helped me. Let me tell you how he can 
help you. Your past doesn't disqualify you. Sometimes people feel like, Pastor, I can't speak up about Jesus. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the, the stuff that I've been through. Your past doesn't disqualify you. Your past prepares you. God will use all of your past. Amen. Look with me at verses 15 through 16. It goes on to say, right, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Right. That would just be crazy. But on a stand and it gives light to all the house. Be a light wherever you are. Don't hide it. Be unashamed of the gospel. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to get on the table at school in the cafeteria and say, I'm a Christian, everybody. No, it's saying let your light shine. Let your light shine. And then God will give you the opportunities to say you are a Christian. But let your light shine. Look, look at how it ends, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to who? Your Father in heaven. See, it's not about you. It's about God getting the glory. We were at a conference this past week uh, where they were talking about evangelism and uh, a lady named Catherine Renfro uh, from the North American Mission Board um, uh, shared her story about when she first learned how to share her faith. Some of you may remember this from our church. She went through faith training, F-A-I-T-H, right? Oh, faith training. And she went out with a group of people door to door and they were going out. And, and when you go out in a group, like everybody takes a turn of, of doing the spiel and going through that. And so she thought, oh, maybe time will be up and I don't have to go. And they said, no, we got one more house to go to. And, and Catherine, it's your turn. And she was like, man, palms sweaty. And she's just knocking on the door, hoping nobody answers. She's like, please, Lord, just don't let anybody answer. <laughs> and she's just honest about it. And she was like, you know, we talked to the people and they let us in and, and they, they came and talked to us. And you asked these series of questions. And, um, and she said, uh, the guy was interested. And she said, the guy wanted to know more. And so I went through the whole faith outline and forgiveness is available and all this sort of stuff. You got to turn in heaven. And, and she went through the faith and, and, and the guy said, yeah, I want to pray to receive Jesus Christ and become a Christian. So he got down on his knees right there in his living room and he prayed to receive Christ. And as soon as they said, amen, the guy stood up and he laughed at him. He said, you thought I was serious? And he just said, <laughs> you're so dumb. You're so stupid. I had you hook, line, and sinker. Get out of my house. She said, that was my first experience sharing the gospel. And she said, that wounded me and it hurt me. I never want to say anything about Jesus again. But she said this. She said, why was I hurt? Why was I so hurt? She said, God gave me this realization. She said, I was not hurt because this guy was lost and going to hell apart from Christ. I was not hurt because of that. I was hurt because I was embarrassed. Because I was still thinking it's all about me. I was hurt because I was mocked. Not the fact that Jesus was mocked, but I was hurt because it was still all about me. And I had to get out of myself and, and forget that it's not about me. I should be more broken hearted over the fact that this man is lost and without hope for eternity. And I was more upset about how I looked in that moment. Man, that was like crucial stuff. I was like, dang, Catherine, like she just brought it. But listen, I identify with that. So your evangelism is not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. God has called us just to be faithful witnesses and to share. So if you will, you should have received a bulletin when you came in. I want to give you some practical application about how to do this as we close. There is an invest and invite card in there and turn it over to the side that says how to preach. I'm going to teach all y'all how to be preachers. Everybody was like, nope, I definitely ain't doing this. Just go. 
tear that thing up, Pastor. Actually, it used to say reach. Uh, then I changed it to preach this week because my friend at Council Baptist, I was sitting with him uh, this week, uh, Gerald Backus. Uh, I said, well, actually, the first thing you got to do is, I told him about the REACH acronym. I said, well, the first thing you got to do is pray. And, um, and that wasn't part of my acronym. He said, so really, your acronym needs to be PREACH. And I said, oh, yeah. So that's why the P's in parentheses. And I'm giving credit to my friend Gerald uh, over at Kempsville Baptist. He's an awesome dude. And um, so, so what does this process look like? It starts with, you got the side that says how to preach. Pray before I do anything else. Pray before I do anything else. Can you do that, believer? Can you pray for people who are lost and without Christ? Uh, one old preacher said, look, talk to God about people before you ever talk to people about God. So our first step is prayer because God can do anything. Right. Then R, reveal that you're a Christian. Find a way to reveal your Christian. What do you do this weekend? Instead of being like, mm, uh, you know, we just did some stuff. We hung out. We did some stuff Saturday. What did you do yesterday? I just watched TV. Be like, I went to church, man. Like for some of you, that's a good first step. Right. That's a good first step. Uh, e is extend an invitation to community, a, a deeper relationship, meaning like coffee, a friendly environment with other Christians, Bible study, worship service. Extend that invitation to them. A is ask about their personal story and spiritual beliefs. This is where the conversation is. Say, tell me what you believe. I don't really know what you believe. Can you explain that to me? And you don't have to try to tear apart what they believe. You just listen and say, that's interesting. Tell me your story. Because we love people. This should be motivated by love. I want to know your story. I don't want to just try to get a spiel off of my chest. I actually care about people. So ask about their personal story and spiritual beliefs. C, communicate your personal salvation story. We'll get to that in a moment. And then H is help them to know Christ by sharing the gospel and inviting them to respond. So we like to say it like this. I know it's in tiny letters. and You got to get a magnifying glass to read it. And, and uh, we're just trying to fit it on the car. We won't try to hide anything. Um, it says one story. That's your personal story. What is that made up of? It's made of my life before Jesus, how Jesus saved me, and my life since I met Jesus. That's, you could say, listen, I, I used to cuss like a sailor. I was a sailor, and I cussed worse than all the other sailors combined. I cussed more than all the sailors in sailing history since time began. But Jesus saved me, and now I only cuss about three times a week <laughs> when the pastor preaches too long. <laughs> Right. It's just as simple as that. This 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 is my life before Christ. This is how I met Christ. I, I man, my friend told me about Christ and, and he saved me. And now now he's changed me. And then listen, could you just over these next four weeks? Yeah, we're going to be doing this four weeks. Some of y'all already scheduled your time away from church. Today. I'm going to take vacation these next four weeks. Verse just one verse. Could you just memorize one verse? Right. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That could be the one verse you share with your coworker, your neighbor, your, your, your sister, your aunt, your mother. And then one person. Who's your one? Maybe you've done this with us before. Go ahead and flip the card over. We're going to invest and invite them. And, and, and what we found it helpful to do, what I found it helpful to do, because we all know many people, right? Think about your family. Think about the, your coworkers, your neighborhood, people you know. Um, and, and the places you visit, maybe the grocery store, the gym, you see the same people day in and day out. Just pick one of those people who you know is far from God or you think is far from God and, and doesn't have a relationship with Christ. Put their name there, my number one. Maybe you already know this person is. They are your whoever, your parent, your cousin, and you see them every other week. Would you put their name there? And then because we all know many different people, would you write the names of maybe a few other people there? Some of you are going to have longer lists than others. That's okay. 
And then I want you to follow the steps on the other side. And that first step is really to begin praying. Maybe you have already done that. I want to continue to encourage you to do that. Uh, If you need some help with this, uh, we have put some 30-day prayer guides around the church. They look like this. And uh, man, these are awesome. Pick one of these up. If you're a version Bible app, you, you got the version Bible app, and you like the plans that are on there, you can find this exact same plan there. Uh, in there, just type in who's your one. They actually have two different um, ones. And uh, so grab one of these on your way out. It's a great way to help you just stay focused during this month. If you're going to do this with us, here's the last thing I want you to do as we prepare to close is would you fill out your connection card? Now, I know you got cards you're juggling. You're trying to figure out all this stuff. But on your connection card, if you'll pull it out again, uh, underneath next steps, there's a bold next step there. It says, I want to take the invest and invite challenge. If you would do that with us over this month, over this year, really, because I don't know how long it'll last, you're going to focus on one person who needs to know about Christ. Just check that box. Make sure your name's on there so we know who you are. Again, put as much information as you're comfortable with. But I'd like to take the invest and invite challenge. And then on the back, you can put, please pray for blank. I'm inviting them to know Jesus. That's your one. Does that make sense? So if you could do that here in these next few moments, that would be a great blessing. Pastor, why does all this matter? Why why is this important? Sometimes we lose the value of this and forget about this. But how many of you remember that a long time ago, um, there was this uh, program put on by the, the, the Center for Missing and Exploited Children where they would put kids' faces on the milk cartons. I think we got a picture of that, right? When I grew up, I remember seeing this. This was back in the 80s. Uh, kids would go missing, and they would put them on the milk cartons. And the, and the thought process was people buy because, well, by the way, there was no Internet. This is pre-Internet days. You couldn't send out a push notification. You couldn't even put it online, okay? Um, CNN in the early 80s was an experiment. Okay, there were no major news coverages covering all this other stuff. And so milk cartons were a pretty good way. And the Dairy Association decided to get behind this. And, and, um, and so it was a good way. Like this is the first, you know, social media because uh, they figured everybody eats cereal and, and, or drinks milk. And so it's going to be in people's homes. And people would see these faces and call in the number for this child. So you would see this missing. Have you seen me? And there'd be a number on there. There'd be some information about them, that sort of stuff. And it was this reminder of, um, hey, there are missing kids. Well, the problem is uh, it didn't last all that long. It kind of faded out by the 90s. A variety of reasons for that, including technology, and now we have Amber Alerts and all that sort of stuff. Um, But one of the reasons why we think this faded out of existence is because people just began to take those milk cartons and toss them in the trash, right? I mean, they looked at them for a little while, and they just tossed them in the trash. You know why people were doing that? You just kind of get used to it, right? You also know why people were doing that? Because it wasn't their kid on the milk carton. If your kid was missing, if your child was missing, you would do everything in your power to find them. Right? I know I would. I got five of them. If one of them was missing, I would not sleep. I would search every home and kick down every door, okay? There was a movie uh, with Liam Neeson in it called Taken. Like, I lived that movie in my mind ever before that movie came out, right? I had already thought of all that stuff. I was like, Liam Neeson, you got nothing on me. Like, I already thought of way worse things to do to people who ever touched my kids. My kids are so precious to me. I would do anything if they were missing. You know, God's got some kids, and they're missing. And God has done 
everything possible. He has kicked down the greatest doors. He has crossed the greatest barriers to get his kids back. He is so brokenhearted. He is willing to do whatever it takes to get them back. He is willing to do and pay whatever cost it took. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price. Because it wasn't just that, that, that his kids got kidnapped innocently. It was that, that his kids really ran away from home. And, and that's really what, it, what the story of the gospel is. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, you're, you're here and you're just kind of figuring stuff out. The, the story of the gospel is we didn't just get, get kidnapped. We, we ran away from home and said, God, I'd prefer to do life without you. I, I, I don't need you in my life. We have sinned against God by our actions and our thoughts. And we have stiff-armed God and ran away. And he is still calling you back home. And he's saying to you, sir, ma'am, you can come back home. Anytime. I sent my son. I paid the price. I want you to see all that I've done to get you back. Would you start a personal relationship with me? If you're here today, you don't have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We invite you to do that. In fact, we're going to pray here in just a moment. I invite you to join me in that prayer. If God has been speaking to you. What does it take to come back when you're far away from God? It simply involves turning, repenting from your sins, facing God. That's what repentance means. I turn my back on sin. I turn my back on me being in charge of my life and I surrender and I submit my, myself to God and his ways. And I say, God, I've messed up my life. I've, I've been in charge for too long and I realize that. If that's you today, we'd invite you to know Christ personally. Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Heads bowed, eyes closed, nobody bothering their neighbor as the worship team comes back. If you're here today and you know that's you, you're far from Christ and you need to know him personally. I'd like to lead you in a little prayer. If It's not any magic words, but if it's just the condition of, of your heart, you might want to say something like this in your heart. You might want to say something like, Dear Jesus, Dear Jesus, I admit 